This is Stuart Millard, and you are haunted. Once again, thanks for writing in with your real-life ghost stories and paranormal experiences for me to share. Before we begin, can I just make a plea that everybody stop sending in stuff from Ghostbusters 2? After last week's prank, half the emails have been about slime or Vigo the Carpathian. I even had one about a giant bat which got covered in cement and turned into a gargoyle, which is from Gremlins 2. So yeah, knock it off. Moving on, our first email is from Robbie in Kidderminster. In my younger days, I did a bit of time at Her Majesty's pleasure. I won't go into why, but it, it's nothing that would give you cause to spray the word beast on my front door. I was given nine months, but with good behaviour I could be out in six. I'd never been inside before, and the first time is always scary when the only thing you've got to go on are all the prison film cliches. I mean, whenever a celebrity gets arrested, you see all the Facebook jokers going on about dropping the soap. So I just assumed I'd be getting my back door smashed right off its hinges. But it's not like the movies. Keep to yourself, don't get involved in the politics, and it's mostly fine. Honestly, the worst part of those first weeks is having to do all your toilet business while locked in a tiny room with another bloke. The days of slopping out were gone, so it's not like you were pushing your muck out into a bucket. But even so. They stuck me in with this guy who was into his third year of a nine stretch. So he was well used to it, just casually shiting with no warning. I'm a cubicle user at the best of times. Can't abide urinals, and I can't even go if I think someone can hear the tinkle. Shy bladder's the medical term. If someone comes in when I'm halfway through, it's like stepping on a garden hose. First night inside, I'd been holding in a piss so long, I considered shanking a guard so they'd stick me in solitary. And as for number twos, by the time I did squeeze one out, it was like giving birth to a Terry's chocolate orange. Anyway, I think I got sidetracked a bit. Back to the story. A couple of months in, I got moved to another cell. It happens pretty often, as they like to change the dynamic to keep clicks from forming. I got put in a cell on G-Wing with two other guys. All three of us crammed together, which if you're keeping score, up the pooing and weeing by 50%. The main thing they don't tell you about prison isn't the bumming, it's the noise constant, unrelenting noise. All day and all night they're shouting, and other people shouting at them to shut the fuck up for shouting. Not on G-Wing. During the day there was a hushed atmosphere. Like, you know the way people start whispering just because everybody else is, and nobody knows why. And on that first night it was almost completely silent except for cell number 63. Cell 63 was at the far end of the block on the first floor, and though most of the other cells had two or three inmates, whoever was in there was by himself. We were at the other end of the walkway, but we could hear him going, Nah, fuck off. I'm not having that. Nah, fuck off. Fuck off. Not long after lights out, he starts banging on the door. I mean, bloody hammering like the cell was on fire. The screws told him to pipe down, and eventually he did. The next morning at roll call, 
It was like all the fight had gone out of him. All quiet, head down. Other than these pitiful little whimpering noises, he never spoke the rest of the time he was on G-Wing. He'd take a chair and turn it so it was facing the wall and just sit there all day. About six weeks later, he was transferred out of cell 63 and someone else got moved in. Big bloke, in for GBH. Everyone was shit scared of him. Supposedly, he'd robbed a WH Smith's and made a bystander eat a whole newspaper. That first night though, shouting, hollering, begging to be let out. A few days later they found him hanging from a pair of grey joggers. Whenever cell 63 lost its tenant, they'd always stick someone new in. Prison troublemaker usually. And everyone else would hunker down for the night, trying to ignore their shrieks. It was awful. I think we'd rather have been on the nonce wing with all the peds than have to listen to that. During the day, lags would sometimes dare each other to go into cell 63, just to take a step inside. I never had the bottle, but one bloke, who'd burned down his ex-wife's caravan, he said it looked perfectly normal in there, except for this shadow in the corner. I got let out a few months later and was firmly back on the straight and narrow. Not so much as cycling on the pavement, once Wikipedia came along, I looked the old place up. Apparently, G-Wing used to house the Category A prisoners. Your murderers and proper nutters. Had no idea at the time, but a few years before my stay, it had held one of Britain's most notorious killers. I won't say his name, but you definitely know who he is. Horrible bastard. Alright, it was f that was the prison he'd done himself in. Didn't say which cell, but you can make a fair guess. From the sounds of it, he's still doing his time. This next letter's from Lenny Henry. Brackets, not the one off the telly. Last year I moved to the seaside. While the weather was nice, it was a novelty to get up early and walk along the beach. When the tide's all the way out, the sand seems endless. It's like being on another planet. I love the solitude, as there's usually not another soul around at five in the morning, barring the odd jogger or dog walker. And one could easily pretend to be that little robot chap who trots about on Mars. One morning I was out just after sunrise, right around low tide. I was about 200 yards from the shore, on this vast landscape of shining sand, gazing out to sea. I was so lost in thought, I jumped when I realised there was an old woman stood next to me. I say old, she was probably 60 at most, but looked like her makeup had been applied by Homer Simpson's shotgun. She was dressed strangely for that time of day, in a sparkly dress with an elegant scarf pulled around her shoulders and was mildly dishevelled as if she'd been up all night. She asked me, were you at the party? I've been trying to get home. 
She seemed a bit confused, looking at me slightly askew, and I noticed she was carrying her shoes, a pair of stilettos which were scuffed and worn right down. I told her I hadn't been to any parties, and she asked if I had the time. I pulled out my phone to check, and when I looked up, she was gone. I was alone in every direction, and the only trail of footprints were my own, barring a single pair, right beside me. This was sent in by Colin from Yorkshire. As a child of 60s Britain, my relationship with my father was probably typical of most. He was very firmly from the generation of men who'd been taught not to show their emotions, and though I'm sure he loved me, it was from a slight distance, demonstrated not through hugs or words, but in the hours he put in down the factory, putting food on the table and coal in the fire. He was a quiet man, rarely raising his voice in anger. In fact, the only time I ever saw him become physically aggressive was when I was helping down the allotment as a young lad. I wandered off and was absentmindedly kicking at clods of soil when some guy walking by called me a hooligan and gave me a clip round the ear. When I went back and told my dad, he marched straight after the fella, grabbed him by the lapels and planted the nut on him, even giving him a boot up the jacksy as he scuttled away, with a warning of, Don't you touch my boy! The only thing he said about it on the way back home was, best not tell your mother. I think pottering around the allotment was his escape, the equivalent of what my granddaughter calls self-care when she's laying in bed watching Netflix. He packed it all in after shooing some loose dog away from the tomato plants and getting bitten on the ankle. It was not long after that that the sleepwalking began. The first time it happened, Mum woke up to an empty bed, and went outside to find him curled up underneath the bird table. Where's your pyjamas? she said, probably afraid the neighbours would see and think he was an alky, especially after it kept happening. When one of them knocked, she was worried they might have seen him staggering past their kitchen window with his meat swinging, but they just wanted to know if we'd seen their rabbit. That spring, all of the lampposts on the walk to school were lined with posters for lost cats and dogs. Then a kid went missing. A boy from big school. I went with my dad, actually, for the search party they sent out, scouring the moors until it went dark, and then back out at dawn. Never did find him. That lad was only the first. More kids started disappearing, when they were playing out, or sometimes right from their beds. One was from my class. Bobby Harris, he was called. I can still picture his face. One of those pudding bowl haircuts. Christ, what a way to be remembered. By the end of term, loads of kids had gone missing. About one a month. There were all sorts of rumours. Some people said there was an actual Pied Piper, and they'd seen him prancing about outside their bedroom windows. Others reckoned it was just a van full of pervs. When summer holidays came, nobody was allowed to play outside. It was really hot that year, so everyone was stuck indoors all day, getting under each other's feet. Tempers were short, and my main memory of that time is mum and dad yelling at each other. 
He tried keeping out of her way, but she got it in her head he was having an affair. Of course she never voiced this with me directly, but I overheard one day, sat on the stairs as she talked with a friend. Perhaps he'd never even been up the allotment. Perhaps he was off with some floozy. I don't think she really believed it. I remember she said, who want that great lump? But it worries you when you're a kid, doesn't it? I got up one night for a glass of water and she was still up, waiting for him to come home. It was mid-morning when he sheepishly reappeared, wearing someone else's clothes. Sleepwalking again, he'd said. Found himself completely bollico. Cuts all up his arms and legs, miles from home. Had to get on the bus with no ticket. Wearing trousers and a blouse, he pinched off a washing line. The next day, word went round that another kid had gone missing. I know what you're thinking, and I was quick to make the connection too, even as a ten-year-old. Could my father be a serial killer? Wasn't that far-fetched. Loads of murderers' families had no idea. I bet Mrs. Sutcliffe thought her hubby's worst crime was stinking out the bog. So maybe my dad was one too. Looking back, I wish he had have been. When school started up again, we had more freedom, and the disappearances finally stopped. At the same time, Dad wasn't sleepwalking anymore, instead going out night fishing every few weeks. Maybe that was it. Just needed a hobby to calm his stress. And the rest was the overactive imagination of a child. The timing of it still niggled away, but I forgot about it soon enough, and everything seemed to go back to normal. Then one day I bunked off school and found myself down at the allotment. He still had a plot there, and as it was one of those cold Yorkshire winters, I thought I'd take shelter in his shed until it was time to go home. It was locked, but I knew where he hid the key. At first I couldn't see anything in there. He'd covered the windows from the inside by nailing them over with roofing felt. Then, from the light of the open door, I could see that he'd emptied the whole place out. The stool, the shelves, all his hose and spades, there was nothing, except for a pair of metal chains screwed to the wall. They were about a foot shy of reaching the door, with manacles on the end. I noticed something else, too. All over the inside of the walls were these scratch marks, deep enough where I could put my fingertips in the grooves. This, I realised, was where my dad had been keeping all those kids before, well, I couldn't go to the police because I knew that I'd put my mum in the nut house and me in care, but I had to do something. I found a rusty screwdriver outside where he chucked all his tools and I used it to loosen the screws. Not so the chains came away from the wall, because then he'd notice, but if he ever started up again, the next kid he tied up in there would be able to pull it free and maybe escape. Less than a fortnight later, my dad was dead. Nobody much came to the funeral and mum never liked to talk about it. She wouldn't even tell me what had happened, other than he'd been sleepwalking again. Years later, I got friendly with an old copper and he told me all about that day, when they'd found him. 
apparently a farmer called in saying he'd seen something big bounding across his field at night. Bounding. Such a specific word, isn't it? Anyway, he had four dozen sheep to worry about, so he took a shot at it, saw it go down, only when he went out the next morning to bag it up, it wasn't an animal. Dad had this great hole in his back where the shotgun had gotten, and he wasn't wearing any clothes. He had something in his mouth, a little arm, gnawed right off. Single bite, he said. I should have gone to school that day. At least it doesn't run in the family. Still, when they're harping on about all these bloody supermoons or blood moons, I keep the curtains closed. final story comes from Ted the Gooner. My wife and I have just had our second child. It's easier this time round, at least from a new parent anxiety perspective. With the first one, I was terrified that something would happen to the baby afraid I might drop him on his head or sneeze and accidentally throw him out of the window. Nights were the worst. He wasn't a great sleeper, and whenever he did eventually drop off, me and the wife were constantly checking he was still breathing. We got one of those baby monitors where you can watch it through your phone, and if they start fussing, you can talk to it through the app to settle it back down. It worked out pretty well. Eventually, we got into a good routine. Our son got older, not yet able to speak, but crawling around. After we put him down, you'd sometimes see him on the monitor, pulling himself up on his crib and peering into it. But at least he wasn't crying. One day, I came home from work, and my wife told me when he'd gone down for his afternoon nap, she'd heard music coming out of the baby monitor. I didn't think much of it, figure it as just a crossed wire, or whatever the modern equivalent is. I remembered a cheap walkie-talkie I'd had as a kid that picked up the local taxi dispatch. Friday nights I used to lay in bed listening to the drunk old boys getting rides home from the local working men's clubs until I fell asleep. But still this persisted, hearing music from the hallway which stopped whenever she went in the room. Then one day, I heard it too. I know what you're thinking. Oh, he's written to a ghost podcast, it's going to be spooky circus music or one of them clockwork monkeys banging its cymbals together. But it wasn't. It's bloody Cliff Richard. Slade. Brotherhood of Man. 70s stuff. But from listening outside the door, it wasn't the actual bands. It was just somebody singing them. Or humming. Or... <coughs> like you would to yourself while you were doing the washing up. It was also innocuous. I wasn't scared or anything. I mean, one day I caught a few bars of Remember You're a Womble. It's only when I heard it talking to my son that I began to worry. I've been so lonely before you came along, little buddy. I ran in there and ripped the thing off the wall, straight in the bin. 
I figured it must be hackers. You read about people sat on their laptops thinking the webcam's off. Next thing you know, some teenager in Russia's got a video of your balls. But it didn't seem right. So, one afternoon, when the wife had taken him to see her mother, I plugged it back in. Right away I could hear it, or rather, him. He wasn't singing this time, or speaking, but there was that kind of rhythmic crackling you get when someone's breathing down the phone. I put my hand behind my back and asked how many fingers I was holding up, with no way the camera could have seen me. Four, it said, in a way that seemed sad somehow. And of course, that was correct. But I wasn't interested in a conversation. I just wanted him gone, and told him as much. There was silence for a moment, before he said, I live in the floor. I took the thing outside and smashed it with a hammer. Moved the nursery into the spare room. We keep the old one locked now. And just time for some quickies. Casey from Tranmere writes, a Mothman keeps setting off my security light. Hector J received an email from his dead father. It was a link to a story about 5G masks turning dogs pansexual. And from Twitter, the Pope's boner says, As a boy, I always wished goodnight to the man in the moon. One night, he said it back. It shook all the tiles from the roof. You Are Haunted was written, produced and performed by me, Stuart Millard. To support the show and get early access to episodes, go to patreon.com slash franticplanet. Find me on Twitter at franticplanet and check out franticplanet.com for my other writing. Credit for all music is in the show notes. Alright, cheers.